Uh, well, with that, I have the privilege of bringing us God's Word. Uh, if you have your Bibles uh, or a phone, uh, if you want to turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verses 16 to 25. Uh, it's going to be on the screen behind me as well, but uh, I know some of you like to take notes on your phones and things like that. So if you want to pull it up there, it's Galatians 5, 16 to 25. And I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version of that text, okay, the ESV. And as we've been doing every week, um, I'm going to read that first section, but when I get to verse 22, I'll signal us and we'll read verses 22 to 25 together. And we really want to commit uh, this, these verses to memory throughout the course of this sermon series, okay? Galatians 5, 16 to 25, this is the reading of God's Word. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And let's read this together. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Amen. Let me say a prayer for us. Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. May, may I communicate uh, your words in your heart only. May you work through this word uh, to open our hearts that we might experience more of your love and your grace this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, well, today we're continuing our series on the fruit of the Spirit. And last week we talked about the first fruit on Paul's list, the fruit of love. And we talked about love as being a freedom from selfishness. Right? The ability to lay down our lives, the ability to lay down our needs, our time, our preferences for the sake of another without asking for anything in return. It's the love that Jesus models for us on the cross. And we said the more we learn to abide in Jesus' unconditional love for us, the more we're able to show that same love to others. Well, today we're going to talk about the next fruit on Paul's list, the fruit of joy. Now, let me start by asking a question. When was the last time you experienced genuine joy? Pure, unadulterated joy? That you yourself, you know, the image often that comes to mind is like a young child just laughing about nothing, right? Just genuine joy. When was the last time you experienced that? And my guess is that most of us would probably point to some event or circumstance, maybe a wedding, a birthday, 
the moment you found out you got into that grad program you were really hoping to get into, uh, a vacation, a concert, right? I talked to someone at our church, um, and I asked her top three kind of moments of your life, how would you rank them? And she said, honestly, number one, for sure, birth of my first child. Uh, number two was BTS at SoFi. Um, and number three was the birth of my second child, right? And um, if you're a younger sibling, you know, you know the struggle. Um, I don't, I'm an older sibling, so sorry. Um, but, you know, if, if it makes you feel any better, um, you know, her wedding day didn't even make the list, okay? So her poor husband. Um, but, but I think a lot of times when we think about joy, we think about joy in terms of these big events or milestones, right? But outside of those things, um, I think we can all agree that we live pretty joyless lives. Um, in Galatians 4, one chapter before this, the Apostle Paul asks a really haunting question. He says, what happened to all your joy? What happened to all your joy? And he's talking to the Galatian church, and it's such a sad question because you have to imagine Paul planted this church. And so he was there at the beginning when everything was exciting, when people were experiencing the gospel for the first time, when there was so much love and life and activity. And there was, you know, and, and I've been thinking about this a lot as we move into two services and as our staff has been thinking about the growth of our church and kind of how far our church has come. And it's, it's a humbling question to think about because I wonder if the Apostle Paul were to visit citizens I wonder if he would ask us the same question. What happened to all your joy? I imagine if he were to come to citizens, he would see a group of people who for the most part live extremely comfortable lives, who have a lot. We live in America, the wealthiest country in the world. We live in LA, where there is no shortage of things to do events to go to, concerts to attend, people to hang out with. You know, most of us in this congregation, if we really wanted to take a vacation, we could. And yet again, I wonder if the Apostle Paul would still look at us and say, what happened to all your joy? I remember talking to a friend um, who was working really hard to make it into the PGA. And he gave his whole life to the game of golf. And if you've ever played golf, um, you know how hard this game is. It's like the best and worst game ever. Okay, and um, even people who are extremely good at golf can't sniff the PGA. It's nearly impossible to make it. And, and for whatever reason, my friend was really good at golf, but he could never get over that hump, right? And one day, uh, after trying for many years, he decided to give up the game altogether. I remember talking to him. I remember saying, you're so good. Why give up now? And he said, you know, when I was young, my entire world was golf. I loved the game so much. I couldn't, like, go a day. I couldn't go an hour without thinking about golf. Everywhere I went, I was practicing my swing. If I knew I had a round the next day, I was washing my clubs, I was cleaning them. I couldn't sleep because I couldn't think about the next round. But as I got older and as I tried to make it my livelihood, all of a sudden, as I was failing year after year, I would look at the game of golf and this thing that used to give me so much joy was now connected to my shortcomings as a person. 
It was now connected to my failure, my inability to make it. And he said, one morning I woke up and I just lost the joy of it. And it was that thought scared me so much that it was easier for me to just quit the game altogether. And I wonder if this is what's going through the Apostle Paul's mind as he visits the Galatian church. What happened to your joy? I wonder if this is what he would think of if he came here. What happened to your joy? Isn't it interesting that it's often the people who seemingly have the most who lack the most joy? A study done in 2020 by the University of Chicago showed that Americans are the unhappiest they've been in 50 years. In 50 years. Uh, a recent CDC study of teens in the U.S. Uh, showed that from 2009 to 2021, the share of American high school students who say they feel persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness rose from 26% to 44%, which is the highest level of teenage hopelessness ever reported, and it's still rising. I want you to think about that. In America... Again, the wealthiest country in the world, almost half of young people feel hopeless every day. It's a scary thought. How is that possible? And what I want to argue today is that I think it's because we have traded true joy for a cheap substitute, for worldly happiness and pleasure. See, a lot of times... When people describe joy, and I'm sure when I ask you to think about a moment in your life when you experience joy, most of us thought about happiness or pleasure. Most of us thought about an emotion, right? It's the emotion you get. It's that rush that comes into your mind when you experience something that you like or something good happens to you or when something uh, that you wanted you finally get. But we all know what happens to emotions. They change. They go away. They're fleeting. You see, worldly happiness and pleasure are temporary emotions that come from external experiences and circumstances. But joy, as described in the Bible, is not an emotion but a constant state of being. It's a deep inner satisfaction that lives inside of us that isn't dependent on the things that are happening out there. So whether or not we're getting the things we want, whether or not things are going according to the script, whether or not we're on an exotic vacation or in a relationship or living in our dream home, the Bible says we can have joy. Pain and hardship can take away our happiness and pleasure, but they cannot steal our joy. In fact, the Bible tells us that pain and hardship can actually increase our joy, can actually grow our joy, that we should view the trials and suffering we experience in our lives as opportunities to cultivate greater joy. I want you to think about this. Nobody talked about the joy, nobody talked about joy more than the Apostle Paul. But when you look at his life, you have to wonder, what was there to rejoice about? In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul lists out all the things he's been through. He says, five times flogged with 39 lashes, three times beaten with rods, stoned, imprisoned, shipwrecked, deprived of food and water. And these are just the physical things. He's not even talking about the emotional toll that his life probably took on him. Grief, loss, loneliness, 
constantly living in fear for his life. I mean, Paul would put any of our lists to shame, and so it would be a miracle for someone like him to even believe in God, yet alone walk around everywhere telling people to rejoice, and yet that's what he does. It's one thing when somebody who has everything tells you how grateful they are, and it's a completely other thing when somebody who has nothing that we would equate with happiness and pleasure in this life tells you how grateful they are for their life. You know, it's like those people, right, like who take shirtless pics with washboard abs on Instagram, and they take pictures of themselves sitting next to the pool in their $10 million home, and the caption is like, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it, right? And if you're like one of those, if you're like one of those people, you know, no judgment, it's okay. All the, all the more power to you, okay? I would probably post pictures like that too if I had an eight-pack, okay? Um, but in the long run, that doesn't really do that much for anyone else because you have everything. You experience happiness and pleasure, Show me a person who says, I just had a miscarriage. Show me a person who says, my parents are in a hospital room. Show me a person who says, I just got laid off from my job. This is the day the Lord has made. I'll rejoice and be glad in it. That's when the world takes notice. That will preach. And obviously, don't hear me say that I'm, I, I think we should ignore our pain or minimize our pain or dismiss our pain. I'm not talking about toxic positivity where we pretend that everything's okay when there isn't, right? I mean, that's, that's avoidance, that's escapism, that's not true joy. Christian joy acknowledges reality for what it is. Christian joy is brutally honest about the brokenness of our lives and the world. Christian joy says, God, this really hurts. God, I don't understand. I really miss my parents, God. God, I really think this, this season needs to be over. God, I'm struggling with my mental health. Joy isn't a refusal to face grief and sorrow. It's a refusal to allow grief and sorrow to have the final word over our lives. It's a refusal to let the worst moment of our lives define our lives. It's the unwavering belief that there's something profoundly beautiful and sweet on the other side of our pain. So the goal isn't to avoid sadness. We live in a broken world, so you and I will be sad. We'll be sad a lot. You don't have to go looking for sadness. Don't worry. Sadness will come looking for you. Okay, if you're a new freshman in college, I'm sorry. It's just going to get more sad from this point on, okay? <laughs> sorry. sorry, it's so depressing, okay? Okay, sadness will come looking for you. In John 16, Jesus doesn't say, in this world you may have trouble. He says, you will have trouble. Sadness and grief and loss are a part of life. There's no way to, ex to escape it. And yet so many of us are convinced that we can. So many of us are convinced that there is an amount of money that there is some experience, some person, some relationship that can shield us from the sadness, grief, and loss of this life. 
And so we go from job to job, career to career, relationship to relationship, experience to experience, hoping that at some point we're going to be fulfilled. But let me tell you, worldly happiness and pleasure is a drug. It might satisfy the itch for a day. It can even satisfy it for weeks, maybe even years. But at some point, you're going to need to go bigger. You're going to need to go better. You're going to need to go more extravagant to achieve the same high. Last year, The New Yorker ran an interview with Morgan Neville, who is the documentary filmmaker behind the movie Roadrunner, a movie about Anthony Bourdain's life. And I talk about this movie all the time because Anthony Bourdain's death shook me to the core. I loved Anthony Bourdain. And it confused me when he took his own life because I was like, how does someone who has everything take his own life? How does that guy have no will to live anymore? How does that guy find himself in a place of utter despair and hopelessness? And one thing the film talks about is that the one question that propelled and consumed Bourdain's entire life was the possibility of happiness. Neville, talking about Bourdain, says this, he made best friends one week at a time. He travels, he meets them somewhere, and they think they have a new best friend, and then he would never see them again because he was on to the next place because they didn't do it for him. He was on to the next place, the next experience, the next person, and the reason he kept moving, according to Neville, was just the hope that the next thing was going to make him happy or solve something in his life. He had everything that you could ask for, and yet he lacked the one thing you need, joy. You don't have to be a Christian to understand that everyone can find creative ways to try to hide and mask the pain of this world, but in the end, that's all it is, a distraction. And at some point, if you haven't yet, we will all have to reckon with grief, loss, and sadness. But whereas the flesh will try to use that pain to pull us deeper into despair and hopelessness, the Spirit will meet us in the middle of that pain and offer us a vision of something better. The book of Philippians is called the Apostle Paul's Treatise on Joy because he uses the words joy and rejoicing 16 times in the letter. 16 times. And because of that, when you're reading Philippians, you often forget that Paul is actually writing this not on the other side of suffering. He's writing it in the middle of suffering. He's writing this letter from a prison cell. And yet from a prison cell, he's still saying things like, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. In Romans 5, he says, We rejoice in our suffering knowing that suffering produces endurance. And it's not just Paul. In the book of James, we read in chapter 1, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. In 1 Peter 1.6, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. There's this constant connection between suffering and joy. How? That in the worst moments of their life, these New Testament writers found a deep, lasting joy. They found something that other people could not find. Wouldn't we all love that? To not have to wait for the next big thing to happen for, to us for us to have joy.
for us to not have to wait for this season to be over to have joy, for us, us not to have to go travel and go on another vacation for us to experience joy, to have joy now. And guess what? We can. Because joy, again, isn't something that we find out there, but it's something that the Holy Spirit produces supernaturally in us. Psalm 1611 says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. In your presence. Everything I could ever want or need in this life, I can find in your presence. And when the presence of God dwells inside of us, that means we can have access to the fullness of God's joy everywhere we go. We can have joy sitting at our desk on Monday morning. We can have joy sitting in traffic. We can have joy in a hospital room. We can have joy sitting right here, right now, because the Spirit dwells in us. Joy dwells in us. Well, how do we cultivate this joy? Just because joy lives in us doesn't mean it can't be cultivated. I love that the metaphor that Paul uses in Galatians 5 is the metaphor of fruit, right? Because even though the fruit is in us, fruit in seed form still needs to be tended. It still needs to be watered. It still needs to be cultivated. It still needs to be nurtured. It needs to grow. Well, then how do we grow our joy? And let me just give us two simple practical things, okay? Number one, don't make this life more than it is. Don't make this life more than it is. The book of Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite books in the Bible. Okay, if you're a four on the Enneagram, you probably love the book of Ecclesiastes. A lot of existential thoughts in that book. But for a lot of people, it can be a very depressing book because the overarching theme of Ecclesiastes is that life and everything in it is meaningless, that everything is just a vapor that's here one moment and gone the next. But what a lot of people don't realize about Ecclesiastes is that it's also a book about joy. Six times in the book, the teacher encourages the reader to eat and drink with joy. In chapter 8, I'll give you two examples. He says, I commend joy, for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. In chapter 3, there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. How can a book about the meaninglessness of life also be a book about joy? And the idea is this. Because this life is meaningless, because everything is trivial and fleeting and everything is going away, just enjoy it. And it's counterintuitive, but it makes sense. I would say often the very reason we struggle to cultivate joy in our lives is because we take this life far too seriously. And I'm not just, obviously I'm not saying we should just live however we want, you know, and not care about people or care about anything and not take care of our responsibilities. I'm not saying that. But any time we make a person or an experience or a career more than it was meant to be, we lose the joy of it. All right, I want you to think about this. Um, when, I went, when I went into music, I, I went to pursuing music full-time because uh, there was nothing in my life that gave me more joy 
I loved every aspect of music. I loved listening to music. I loved creating music. I loved playing music. I loved that music brought people together. I loved being able to share my story through music. I loved the different kinds of people I was able to. Music was everything to me. But there was a moment when all of a sudden music became my identity. When I found my meaning and purpose in music, and all of a sudden that was the quickest way for me to lose all joy of doing it. Because I made it more than it was meant to be. I couldn't enjoy it the same way, and I needed years to heal from that perspective. I needed years to be able to play music for fun again because I couldn't do it, because it was tied to so many other things. I took it far more seriously. I held on to it too tightly. One of the best ways to cultivate joy in our lives is to simply enjoy the gifts God has given us, the ways they were meant to be enjoyed, as gifts, not as gods, as something to be enjoyed, not to be worshipped, to go outside and to take a walk and to enjoy it and to see it as that. What a gift to be able to walk, to be able to live in this city with beautiful weather. What a gift. It's just a gift. I remember the first time eating at a Michelin star restaurant. I didn't know anything about um, good food at the time. And um, I paid a lot of money for that 10 course meal, okay? And the waiter brought out some complimentary bread for the table. And I was pissed because I was like, I paid all that money for a loaf of bread to be the first course. And, and my friend who was sitting with me at the table was like, Jason, the bread is free. And I was like, the bread is free? I was like, well, in that case, this is the best, best bread I've ever tasted in my whole life. This is incredible bread. I couldn't stop eating that bread. But you see, when I thought the bread was the main event, it immediately took my joy away from it. But when I understood that the bread was just a gift, it was free, and there was something better coming, it actually allowed me to enjoy the bread even more, to enjoy the bread as it was meant to be enjoyed, as just a complimentary gift. It was free. When we understand that this life is not the end-all, be-all, it actually increases our enjoyment of every gift, both big and small, and it pulls us out of the hopelessness we feel when things don't go our way. Because we look at that thing and we say, you know what, it's great when we got free bread. When things are going right, when the dominoes are falling in the right places, it's great when the bread is free, but you know what, if there's no free bread at this restaurant, it's okay because I didn't even come to this restaurant for the free bread anyways. I came for the meal. So we don't make this life more than it is. But number two, we don't make eternity less than it is. Do not make eternity less than it is. You see, some of us are sitting here, we're like gorging on that complimentary bread, right? We're like, oh, this is the meal. I have to eat it all. I need it all right now. Not realizing that's not the main course. It's not meant to fill your stomach. 
It's not meant to satisfy you. I know that bread looks good, but the chef is preparing something better than you could ever imagine. When we understand that this life isn't all there is, that there's something better waiting for us on the other side, it changes how we move through the world and how we respond to people and circumstances. Because when good things happen to us, we see all good things as just small foretastes of heaven and unbroken communion with God. We see the good things as just small glimpses of a future glorious reality. When I hug my kids um, at night before bed and that rush of joy enters the system, you know, there are few moments in life that beat that feeling. I understand that in the end, though, these kids are not the source of that joy. I understand that that moment is pointing to another day, the moment we stand before Jesus face to face and we're eternally held in the Father's embrace. After today, right after this service, I'm going to go officiate a wedding uh, for a couple at our church. And that wedding is going to be full of celebration and joy. And sometimes we hit a wedding day and we say, oh, this person is my person and this is going to be the end all and this joy is going to be the best and I'm going to try to find my joy in this person. But when we understand that there's something beyond this life, we learn to see that wedding day as just a foretaste of an epic wedding feast when the bridegroom Jesus is finally united with his bride, the church. We see everything as just a taste and actually increases our enjoyment of the things in this life even more. When my son Jack walks in from school, right, the first thing he always does is he goes, what are you cooking, Appa? He says, I smell that. He says, I know what that is. What's in the oven, right? And a lot of times, I, you know, I still have to cook it for another 30 minutes. So he's like, ooh, I want it so bad, Appa. He's like, I want it. He's like, give me what's in there. And sometimes I'll withhold that thing in there because I want him to experience the full glory of it. And he's getting hangry and he's upset and he's getting anxious and he's pounding his fists. But I'm like, I want you to experience what's coming. But once in a while, because I'm such a nice dad, once in a while I'll say, come here. And I'll let him lick the spoon. And he'll be like, mmm. <laughs> but that's just a foretaste. If what's on that spoon is all that is, that's not a good meal. But if he understands that it's just a glimpse of the meal that's coming, he can enjoy it and he can see it for what it truly is. Don't make this life more than it is and don't make eternity less than it is understanding what awaits us beyond the pain will give us the ability to say in all circumstances the joy of the lord is my strength jesus though he was a man of sorrows was also a man of great joy i want you to think about this this fact the first miracle jesus ever performed was turning water into wine at a wedding that's awesome like jesus more than anybody knew how to throw a, throw a party. He knew how to have a good time. He ate and drank and hung out with his friends. So much of his time was just hanging out, enjoying people's company. And yet his joy wasn't rooted in those things. They were never rooted in the present. And that's why in the lowest 
part points of Jesus' life, when he was stripped of his strength, when he was stripped of his community, when he was stripped of his dignity, when he was hanging on a cross, there's one thing they couldn't steal, his joy. Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. As humiliating and painful as the cross was, Jesus knew there was something profoundly beautiful on the other side. He knew there was healing, there was restoration, there was reconciliation, there was glory. And so, friends, let me just close by saying this. Whatever you're going through today, whatever season of your life you're in right now at this moment, you have a reason to rejoice. If things are going your way and, you know, you got the job that you wanted and you're in a relationship and you're happy, great. Enjoy those gifts. Celebrate them. Be grateful and enjoy them the way they were meant to be enjoyed as gifts. But if you're sitting here and you're navigating grief, navigating pain, navigating loss, when things aren't going according to plan, when things aren't going your way, when you're not getting what you want, know that you can still rejoice as well, knowing that because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, you have a glorious future that awaits you on the other side. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you uh, that you give us an opportunity to share in your joy. God, I know um, in talking to so many people within our community who are experiencing just um, waves of despair and hopelessness, who often go through seasons or moments when they really feel like they have nothing to live for. I pray that um, even now, in this moment, that they would know that in your presence, they can experience all the fullness of joy that you have in your heart. God, help us not to see this life as more than it is and help us to see, um, not to see eternity as less than it is. Help us as we go through our days to be able to enjoy the good gifts but also endure the moments that are difficult knowing that there's something profoundly beautiful and sweet on the other side, knowing that there is something you want to do in us that we can still experience these sufferings and these trials and say rejoice we can say I will rejoice and be glad in you God I pray that our church would be a church in a time of so much hopelessness be a community marked by joy that when people enter this space even for an hour that though what we're seeing on the news is so much doom and gloom that they would come here and experience celebration, experience the joy that we have in your life, in your death and resurrection. 
We thank you for this word this morning. We lift every heart uh, in this room up to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.